Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Howard Kaplan, the author of the recently published novel, The Syrian Sunset. Howard is a native of Los Angeles and has lived in Israel and traveled extensively through Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt. At the age of 21, he was sent on a mission into the Soviet Union to smuggle a dissident's manuscript on microfilm to London. His first trip was a success. On his second trip, he transferred a manuscript to the Dutch ambassador inside his Moscow embassy. A week later, he was arrested in Kharkiv in the Ukraine and interrogated for two days there and then two days in Moscow before being expelled from the USSR. The KGB had picked him up for meeting dissidents and did not know about the manuscript transfers. He holds a BA in Middle East history from the University of California at Berkeley and an MA in philosophy of education from UCLA. He is the author of six novels. Damascus Cover is now a major motion picture starring Jonathan Rhys Myers, Sir John Hurt, and Olivia Thirlbeek, available now on Tubi. So Howard, wow, that's that's some bio. So welcome and, and thank you for joining me today. Yeah, it always made my mother nervous. I bet it did. Even though we didn't tell her for years that I was arrested uh-huh. in Russia. And then I fi- my father knew. And then I finally told her and I was sitting there with her and she still fell apart. So how was it I, you were sent on a mission at 21? I mean, that I, I remember I went to Europe on a study tour at 21 and that was very, very adventurous so how how, who sent you on a mission and how did that come about i did my junior year abroad at the hebrew university Mm -hmm. and like all good stories it begins with a woman i there was a friend of mine actually from my high school hamilton Mm -hmm. high in los angeles Mm -hmm. on the program and she started dating an older american israeli Mm-hmm. who was tasked with picking up Americans to train them to go into the Soviet Union to bring in Hebrew texts, which were not allowed, on their way home from their junior abroad. Wow. So I joined this training group. We met once a week. And at the end of the year, they selected the person they thought was either the most competent or foolhardy (laughs) to bring our manuscript on a roll of microfilm from Moscow back to London. Mm -hmm. So I I don't remember if I volunteered. I think they volunteered me Mm -hmm. and I said, sure. Wow. That's how it began. Wow. So, uh, 
in in your bio it says you you know you've lived in Israel you've traveled extensively through Lebanon Syria and Egypt and I I am reading your book I haven't finished it but I have to say the the descriptions of of Syria really really bring you there um how long were you there? Have you been back? Well, or... I'll tell you how that came about. I actually was in Damascus mm-hmm. for about 10 hours. Oh. I'm anticipating. On my junior year abroad, I went with a friend to uh, Cyprus. We went to Beirut mm-hmm. at the American University of Beirut. There was an American staying there. We stayed with him. He had a Syrian roommate. Mm-hmm. And he said... It's a 50-mile shared taxi ride to Damascus from Beirut. Mm-hmm. They'll give you a visa at the border. We did this. It was very easy to get in. But my friend and I, we went first to the great Omayyad Mosque, from one of the places we went. Mm-hmm. Then we went to the Jewish ghetto, which arrives in several of these novels. And he noticed that somebody who was in the mosque was standing across the street from the ghetto where we were. Mm-hmm. So we knew we were being followed. So we hightailed it back to the main square, Marjus Square, where the Israeli spy Eli Cohen was hung some years before and went back to Beirut. But the answer to your description from which both both of these Syrian novels and some of my Israeli novels are known for happened like this. Dutton bought the Damascus cover. I wrote it in my 20s. Mm-hmm. I went to New York and I met the editor and he handed me a book called Harry's Game by a British author named Gerald Seymour. It was about, it was a thriller about North Ireland, Belfast. Mm-hmm. He said to me, I want to rewrite. And he changed my life and he said, I want to smell Damascus. I want to see yeah, Damascus. Because you, you really do. I, I mean, I you really, really do. It's it, You bring us there. So that's how I learned to do it. I learned to do it from this editor who wanted me to copy how it was done in mm-hmm. a book in Northern Ireland. And in all my books since then, I'm very meticulous on the research and the detail and making you feel like you are in these places but you were only there for a total of 10 hours i believe so no i've never been back it's all it all came from from this amount of research that that that's really amazing um so your new book is the syrian sunset why don't you uh give our listeners a, a brief summary of it i wanted to do something on a grander scale than anything i'd done before all my books are, are a bit historical, uh, historical thrillers, but particularly the Syrian sunset is more than any of them. Mm-hmm. So I have fictional characters who move through entirely real events. So mm-hmm. every major event that happens in the novel is historically correct. And in fact, now I had a Zoom meeting with the UN because some people are talking about filming it. It's only talk about this point. But I have the UN chemical inspectors of Assad's sarin gas in the Sheraton Hotel where they were. Mm-hmm. 
So the UN is interested in backing the film once they see a potential screenplay and they right. ask my sources because they like the veracity of the events that I describe. So I wanted to write a book about the Syrian civil war. And what ended up happening was not part of my initial attention, which, intention, which was the invasion of Ukraine, which had not yet happened when I began the book, began to play a big role in the background of the novel in the following way. What does happen in the book, as happened in reality, Obama set a red line, Assad a year later crossed it, killed 1,100 people with sarin. And then there was a big discussion in the West about what they could do or what not to do. Mm -hmm. In the end, the West backed down. Probably, and it's interesting as we're talking, it's the anniversary of the Iraq war, 20 years. Right, right, right. And it, everywhere you read about the disaster that that was. And all these various leaders, which included Angela Merkel and David Cameron's opposition and John Boehner, they all didn't want to go into Syria where they could have done a lot of good because they were worn out by the experience of going into Iraq where everything failed so miserably. Mm -hmm. So in the end, the West, and I'm a Democrat, so this isn't a political thing, and Obama ceded Syria to the Russians. So if you're Putin and you saw you marched into Syria, built a naval base by the Mediterranean, built a huge air base by the naval base, and then used it making an excuse that you're going to bomb ISIS, but you really spent a lot more time bombing the Syrian free army, which was Bashar Assad's uh, enemies, the people trying to wrest control and gain freedom for Syria. So Putin sees, hey, you know, Syria was a cakewalk. So now it's time for him to go into Crimea and Ukraine. And he sort of says to himself, I suppose, people suppose, there was very little opposition from the West before, so I'll go in again. So the Syrian civil war and the ceding of Syria to Russia plays as an antecedent to the eventual attacks in Ukraine. Although the novel itself spends more, spends its time on the, Sir on the Syrian civil war itself, the resistance of the Syrian people, what they did, what they couldn't do. Um, and one of the things that surprised me in seeing the reviews, because I didn't do it intentionally, but it's just kind of how I am, the book's actually very funny. Right. And it isn't funny because I said, well, it's such a barbaric story. I ought to make it funny to balance it, maybe in the way Catch-22 is. Mm -hmm. It kind of happened by accident. I just created a couple of funny characters and they like to banter the way I like to banter. And everybody said it really made the reading of the actual historical events, because these characters are all fictional, much more enjoyable because it was funny. I have a Russian oligarch who speaks Yiddish. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Well, I bet I bet there are some that do. Well, I got this from, and I'm not sure how well known it is, but Colin Powell spoke Yiddish. Right, right. I right, I remember that. So I just want to clarify something. So you wrote the this before the war in Ukraine, or you wrote it simultaneously with the war? More simultaneously. I began it before the war in Ukraine. But as I was writing it, the war in Ukraine broke out. <laughs> so I, not in a lot of places, but in a number of places, I tailored a little bit to explain how the allowing the Russians, which I did, describe in the novel, free reign led to Ukraine. But I didn't, the idea was not to write it about Ukraine because I began the book before that. Okay, so there are more than 40 years between your two Syrian novels, The Damascus Cover, as distinguished from the movie Damascus <laughs> Cover, and The Syrian Sunset. So how is it that you went back to Damascus after so many years? Well, I'd written three novels of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, trying to look at a humanistic approach to both sides. I had some very good reviews from Arab papers, Al-Fajar, the East Jerusalem Palestinian paper, because I wanted to show both Palestinians and Israelis as human. And in that review, the Palestinian person said, he's now looking at Israelis more human than he had before mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. reading the novel. But I was a little downtrodden by the lack of progress in that arena. And I had met Brooks Newmark. Brooks Newmark is a British member of parliament Jewish, who is very active at the moment, rescuing more than 20,000 uh, Ukrainians from under Russian control and getting them out. Mm -hmm. uh, he was in LA. We went for a walk and he used exactly the words that you used in your question. He said, Howard, it's time to go back to Syria. And by that, he meant write this novel mm -hmm. about this huge subject of the Syrian civil war. And I thought, as often people said things to me, I thought, good idea, I'll try that. And that's where it became, that's where it began. So how, how are the two novels linked in terms of uh, dealing with, with the history of Syrian Jews as subtext? Right, well, when I wrote the Damascus cover in the 1970s, there were 5,000 Jews in a ghetto in eastern Damascus and in a few other cities like Aleppo. There had been 75,000 at the time of the founding of Israel in 1948. Most of them had gotten out, but these 5,000 were being held hostage. So the Damascus cover is about a mission, an Israeli spy mission, to smuggle out a number of these Jewish children Mm -hmm. But there's a but there's a submission or an overmission, maybe. The smuggling of children is really the excuse for a much bigger mission, uh, which is probably why it got filmed. And John Hurt plays the head of the Mossad in that film the way he did in 
Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. So I, so I can get it right now on on Tubi. Tubi. Yeah, yeah, the films the films came out in 2018, I believe. So what, what was that like? What was the process? I mean, that you must have been so excited. Well, it was, you know, everything about it was surprising. <clears throat> it took 10 years for them to get the financing. And basically in making a film, it's all about money. In other words, if you can raise money, you can hire anybody. Oh, really? Yeah. It's just, you know, people work for their scale, whatever. They, and often on a small indie film, they'll work for less because a typical film, this shoot was two months and Sir John Hurt's part was all shot in a week. So, they don't... so did you approach, you approached a film company or they- No, found... it, it happened a little bit unusually. There was a director who wanted to do a Middle Eastern film. Mm -hmm. He went to a friend of his, was talking to her. She had read the Damascus cover years ago had it on her shelf still, pulled it down, gave it to him. He read it and said, I want to make this movie. And 10 years later, he did. It just wow. took him a little bit of time. So uh, I remember I went on set in Casablanca. Most of the Middle Eastern films are shot in Morocco because mm -hmm. it's a huge tableau. Even Babel, that old Brad Pitt movie was shot in Morocco. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember thinking, whenever I heard the scenes that came out of the book, I thought I should have written those better. <laughs> I didn't write the screenplay. But when I heard the new scenes, like the romantic scenes, mm -hmm. which were much better than I wrote in my 20s, although there were two romances in the Syrian sunset. And I think in the 40, 40 years, my romantic life improved and my ability to describe it improved. Mm -hmm. But when I saw the shots, the scenes between Jonathan Reese Myers and Olivia Thirlby, who was fabulous, I thought they did this better than I did. So I was overall pretty happy. Good, so um, getting back to the Syrian sunset, um, can you tell us uh, about the title? Why, why did you choose that title? You know, titles usually, come hard to me. Mm -hmm. In fact, with the Damascus cover, that wasn't my title. I had called the book a sordid affair. Mm -hmm. And when the same Dutton editor came out to Los Angeles, he was staying at the Beverly Wilshire. He had me up. He's talking on the phone. He hands me a folder and he shows me the cover art for the novel, which also I really liked. And mm -hmm. a new title, the Damascus cover, which nobody happened to mention to me. <laughs> uh, but it I think it's a better, it's a more specific. <laughs> right. Um, I was, you know, as I say, whenever I've had good suggestions along the way, I go with them. The Syrian sunset just came to me easily and immediately. I just felt Syria, the sun had set over Syria. The country had gone dark because Bashar al-Assad is still in power. Half a million people died. 13 million, I think, displaced internally, 5 million displaced externally. The numbers I don't have immediately in my head. Um, they're at the back of the novel. And I just felt that that was the title. And I liked it because it lent itself to good artwork. You could have a sunset in the, back, yes. in the background of the cover. In terms of the Syrian Jewry, 
by time the Syrian civil war is taking place, you know, in 2011 through 2015, there are no longer any Jews left in mm -hmm. Damascus. And there is a meeting, a historical meeting, which took place between Bashar al-Assad and Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic leadership in 2007 in something called the Talisman Hotel, mm -hmm. which you can Google, it's a beautiful hotel. What it is, is it's a revamped Jewish mansion uh, made into a boutique hotel. And they did a little tap dance, meaning they, meaning Assad's wife, uh, Asma, is a model, a Vogue cover girl. She fashions herself as the Princess Di mm -hmm. of Syria. But she goes along. She had little kids and with him, and she's just gone along with all the brutality of the regime. And they do a meeting in this hotel, which also takes place in a fictional sense in the novel itself as someone wants to dig up an artifact left by one of the Jewish members of the Syrian Jewish community buried near the rose bushes in the back of the hotel. And one of the antagonist, one of the protagonists who comes in as an undercover agent into Syria to do this mission, which is the mission of the story, is a former Syrian Jew, Jewess, a woman, who'd gotten out as a kid, and it was her necklace they were digging up for her. And they use it to try to entice her to go back to Damascus to help mm -hmm. with the elimination of the Syrian chemical weapons, and she agrees to go. She's a fictional character completely, other than the history of Syrian Jews is not. Okay, well, um, you know, as a historical fiction author myself, I like to ask uh, other authors about their research process. So I'd like, I'd like to hear about that, but I'd also like to know uh, how does researching and historical novel differ now and when you wrote the Damascus cover? Well, I wrote the Damascus cover before the internet. Mm. So the first thing I did, and it's amazing, I used to try these things, even as a little kid, I'd write letters to, you know, the USS mission in Antarctica, and they'd send me back something. Mm. So I wrote to the Syrian tourist agency in Damascus, uh, I've been in my 20s, and they send me back this huge wall map. I mean, it's enormous. It covers an entire wall of the city of Damascus. So whenever I'm writing about Damascus, I pin it to my wall, mm -hmm. and my characters all walk around real places. In mm -hmm. the pre-internet days, where there was nothing that you could Google, fortunately, the Brits had been everywhere and they wrote about it, memoirs, travel mm -hmm. histories. So I found one on Damascus called Mirror to Damascus and I still use it. But with the internet, you have just 
a galaxy of options. For right. example, if I Google, I don't use the aerial Google Maps. I don't know how to do that. And it doesn't seem useful to me. But if I Google the Talisman Hotel, I get a whole sheet of pictures of the hotel interior and exterior. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's easy to kind of crib from that. And I needed at one point, I was surprised that I could get this. There is a checkpoint between Jordan and Syria that I needed to use. So I Google, I found the name of the checkpoint. I Googled it. And lo and behold, I find pictures of the checkpoint. There are these large concrete barriers across the road to you know, block cars from going out or coming in. But the detail that I wouldn't have been able to conjure myself is they were freshly painted with pictures of the Syrian flag. In other words, the Syrian flag was painted onto the concrete. So I put that in the book because it was in reality what's there and you could kind of see uh, what it looked like. There is a notorious prison in Damascus right below a convent that is one of the major pilgrimage convents in the entire Middle East. Uh, and nobody has pictures of that prison. However, I was able to find that people who were released through amnesty groups and other groups have done diagrams of those prisons for the West and what happened there. So I was able to use that too. And then I moved my fictional characters through a story that puts them in these various loca locations. Wow, so um, I'd also like to hear a little bit about your writing process. Do you write the same time every day? Do you write every day? Do you write in the same place? Do you research first and then write? or research as you're going along? Um, how, did, how, did, how does that Well, work? when I can travel to the places, like I wrote a novel called Bullets of Palestine about a real assassination on the Algarve coast in Portugal. So I went there first, stayed in the hotel where this assassination uh, had taken place. I like to know the ending of my book before I start. And I taught writing at UCLA Extension for about a decade. And that's one of the things I imparted because if you know the ending, then every place you go along the way is intended to reach that ending. Right. Um, I still work. And when I, when I travel to look at locations, rather than photograph, I take a pad and actually write descriptions. Because I find then when I'm trying to transmit that description into the novel, I'm a step ahead because I already have written words mm. rather than just photographs. Um, I'm a little old school in that I don't own a laptop. You don't. I, I, I have an old iPad, which I also don't use. Mm -hmm. But I have a um, desktop computer in my office at home. And when I was starting to do podcasts like this for the new novel, I was going to buy uh, a laptop because I didn't have a camera mm -hmm. or a microphone on my old computer. But my son, who's 29, and his millennial girlfriend said, no, 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 no. 
we're going to get you a new monitor with a camera and a microphone in it. That way you're not going to have a laptop you won't use. You'll be sitting at your desk, which you like to do, and you'll have a much better monitor to use altogether. I didn't know such a thing existed. Uh, and so that's what I'm working with now. Interesting. So um, do you think that uh, you'll, there'll be a movie of the Syrian sunset? I had a meeting a few weeks ago in Washington, D.C. with some billionaire medical and uh, technology people, apparently some very wealthy Arabs who were interested, and a bunch of CIA people were there. I don't want to give their positions. CI people are really funny because they all have business cards that call themselves consultants and they uh. have addresses and phone numbers. So I wasn't quite sure who was active and who wasn't, but they all had a lot of interest because of the historical nature of the novel. None of them had actually read it, to be honest with you. I brought copies, which all <laughs> disappeared quickly. Maybe they're waiting for the movie. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're waiting. They want to make the movie before they... <laughs> find out. So, you know, I had this happen once before and I'm a step ahead, a big a leap ahead because it's not an old project like the Damascus cover was. And it's very topical in terms of both Syria and Russia today. So now I'm kind of sitting back and seeing, you know, what happens because this was just two weeks ago. I think I was at three weeks ago. I was in uh, Washington, D.C. I went for one meeting, two nights, uh, and came back. So who do, you, who do you think is the audience for your book? You know, when I taught at UCLA Extension, I used to suggest people read John le Carré for his characterization and description. And there were a lot of women who said, oh, I don't read thrillers. Mm -hmm. I said, just read this, the le Carré bit. They all loved it. My audience is pretty much split between men and women because I'm not a military thriller. You right. know, with the, the details in my book are about people and places, not about hardware and guns and missiles. Mm -hmm. They'll have a little of that. So I have a pretty broad overall readership. Some people who like thrillers, some people who like historical novels, some, a lot of people tell me they learn things from my books and there are people who like to do that. So I seem to have, is near, I, I can tell not a particular sliver of readers of people who like, I think, you know, the Daniel Silva books, I think also too are, you know, hugely popular. And I think they're read by a whole widespread group of people, including politicians and presidents. I'm not yes. quite there yet, but it's okay if they want to read it. I won't mind. <laughs> um, so is there a particular message or messages you wanted to send to readers? Well, you know, in, in great extent, I'm interested in the characters and in the story and in the humor and in the romances. But I am saying something about standing up to evil, which wasn't done. And that's an important thing because I think the world 
And you have to fight the right fights. You have to fight the good fights. I make the point that the Iraq war was a stupid fight of ego and, and blind. You know, they thought what these people are going to throw roses, you know, when the Americans land and they destroy this, you know, the infrastructure of Iraq. But in, in the book too, what, what my British MP friend Brooks and I were arguing for was not for boots on the ground in Syria, but for them to have taken out the helicopter gunships, which dropped barrel bombs, which are fertilizer bombs, like the one Timothy McVeigh mm-hmm. blew up the FBI building in Oklahoma City. And, and that if we would have just gone in, even with cruise missiles, and taken out all the airfields in a way odd, it was in my mind, the way the Israelis took out the Egyptian army, Air Force in 1967, you would have given the Syrian free army and stood up to Putin and said, you know, you go in, we're going in. So you stay out. And we learned a great lesson about not standing up to fascism. I don't know what to call it. Fascism is too facile a word. To evil. I don't know. It's about the only word I can use. We didn't stand up to Putin and we allowed Bashar to murder and decimate his whole population. Which I think we're doing so a lot. Amazing, considering he's a medical doctor. <laughs> well, you know, there's a thing in the book. It's kind of fun. You know, I, I mentioned this also. Um, that you mentioned that he's an ophthalmologist. He's but- an ophthalmologist, but the story is very similar to Benjamin Netanyahu. They are both second sons. Mm. Netanyahu's older brother Yoni, who was the right. favorite son, was mm-hmm. killed on the raid in Entebbe, rescuing hostages. Mm-hmm. Bashar's older brother, which is why he was in London practicing ophthalmology, was an equestrian military guy, mm-hmm. uh, father's favorite, who playboy was speeding to Damascus airport to go skiing in Switzerland in the fog without a seatbelt. Mm. He crashed in the fog and he died. Mm. And they had to pull Bashar back. He was the meek, timid. Um, right. You, you cover all that in the book, right? Right. Exactly. Who was brought back. And I often think his older brother might have been able to make a compromise. Because oh it's goodness. usually the strong, even if they're arrogant and awful, they often have the strength to make deals where Bashar was always trying to prove himself to his dead father that he was strong enough. And he even says, it's in this Vogue article, and I got it in the novel, he became an ophthalmologist because there was little blood during eye surgery. Right, you have that in the book, right. Right. So here he slaughters half a million people, but he doesn't like blood you know, in a medical procedure. Close and personal. (laughs) Um, So uh, what's next for you? Are you working on something? I'm not working. I've been a little involved with the promotion and this film thing, but I want to take this oligarch who uh, the the history- That speaks Yiddish like Colin Powell. Oh, that'd be great. (laughs) Because I was in Tashkent in Uzbekistan during my Soviet Jewry days. Mm-hmm. And I ran into a bunch of Jewish tailors in the old city of Tashkent. And that's where I kind of got the idea from. 
they had been moved by Stalin from Ukraine to get them out of the way, along with a lot of industries. So I have this character who's very funny. His opening line is he explains to people, if you remember, he, he's a film buff because he mm -hmm. builds film entertainment complexes in Moscow. And if you remember the Tom Hanks film, Castaway, right. begins with Tom Hanks working at FedEx in Moscow. Mm. And the plane that goes down that puts him on a desert island is a FedEx plane. If you remember, he has one package he saves with him his whole time, which he delivers. Right. So my oligarch says, I do not believe that the great Tom Hanks would work for FedEx. <laughs> I believe he would save Private Ryan, but I don't believe he would work for FedEx. And there's a whole running line through the novel. So I told the film producers, I want you to go talk to Tom Hanks. Mm. See if he'll play the oligarch the way he did in the terminal. You know, it's a, it's a complete long shot and just so completely crazy that it could happen because wow. the character's funny. And, you know, Tom Hanks is the kind of guy who does what he wants. Yes. If it appeals to him, he'll do it. If, it. if he thinks it's a waste of his where he's going now, he'll say, don't bother me. But it's certainly worth talking to him. So I'd like to do another book somehow with this Russian oligarch. I don't know if he would be the main character or a secondary character, but he worked out so well. Um, he wasn't thought out in detail at all. So that's another answer to your question. Quite the opposite. I had an Israeli spy and an American spy needing to blackmail a Russian. And I'm sitting here at my desk and I say, every way they could blackmail this Russian is boring, cliche has been done a hundred times. Mm. So I thought, what if I make him a Yiddish speaking oligarch <laughs> I love who, that. who they could kind of hang out with, who's not their friend, but not their enemy. You know, he kind of jousts with them to get what he wants and they, they get what they want. So that's how that character was born. So that's an example of a character being born midway through out of a sense of lack of other alternatives. I always want to, you know, I try to teach my writing students, look for something fresh. Look for something that's not in every TV movie, thriller, whatever. And that's what I always try to do. Great. Well, it looks like our time is running short. Howard, do you just want to uh, tell our listeners uh, where they can find you and your books? Um, my, the books are the easiest place to find the books are on Amazon. Mm -hmm. My website is Howard Kaplan books.com Kaplan with a K and I'm on Facebook and I answer people. Facebook is an easy place to, um, I don't like, I don't use Twitter, even though I have an account mm -hmm. and I have Instagram and I don't use that really either because I find if people instant message me on Facebook or friend me or whatever, I can answer. I type very fast. I mm -hmm. can answer rather than trying to do these shorthand social media things. Yeah. So I have a lot of engagement on my Facebook page. And I also, you can ask questions through the website. They come through to me too. 
So is there anything else you would like to add or did we cover? Uh, uh, no, I think I'm, you know, I'm doing fine. I've, you know, I've been at this a long time and the world has not gotten any better in the years I've been alive, which often makes, unfortunately, better fodder for writers. Right. Right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Howard Kaplan. The book is The Syrian Sunset. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Meryl Ain, the author of the post-Holocaust novel, The Takeaway Men. The sequel, Shadows We Carry, will be published on April 25th. For more information about my writing, visit me at merylain.com. Please visit and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. Until next time, join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book. <laughs>